As I write this, it's Monday, July 4th, and my neighbors are having an Independence Day street party. But if I'm just being honest, I didn't want to be there. I love the people on my street, but I'm struggling to love America. The Supreme Court's descent into fundamentalist lunacy, the continued support for a shamed president who tried and is still trying to overturn democracy. Just today, yet another mass shooting where six innocents were killed. I'm fucking tired, and I'm fucking fed up. And I know, in many ways, I'm fortunate to live here, to be a writer, to have this amazing job that's taken me to so many places. But watching the nation I call home spiral out of control, I'm not enjoying it. So, on this Independence Day, I sit in my office, and I record a podcast intro. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Mark Topkin, the Tampa Bay Times sports writer and a man who has covered every single season of Tampa Bay Rays baseball. This is episode number 267. Let's sing some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, uh, Mark, first of all, thank you so much for, for being here. I um, I feel like I haven't seen you in person since I stopped covering baseball 20 years ago, maybe. And you were you were covering the Rays back then. You I mean, are you right now the longest tenured Major League Baseball beat writer in America? I, I think uh, Paul Hoynes in Cleveland and, and maybe one or two others are right around the same period, period maybe have a year or two on me. This is uh, my 25th season um, covering the race for the Tampa Bay Times. And I guess maybe with a little asterisk of it's all 25 seasons of the franchise. So that, that's been kind of a cool experience to literally see it, see it grow up in front of my eyes. Yeah, it's crazy. It's actually crazy because most people, I only covered baseball as a magazine writer, which is way different than doing it as a newspaper guy. Most people are like, uh, I spent two years covering baseball on the beat. Never fucking again. No way. It's hard. <laughs> what makes you the masochist who would want to cover baseball for all these years? I know, right? It, it is crazy. And I've heard people say the same thing. I've heard people say after one year, like, oh, my God, how do you do this? I'm like, I don't know. This is year 18 at that point or year 21, whatever. So, I mean, it's it's fun. I enjoy baseball. I enjoy the people. Um, the travel sucks at times, but you can't say that to your boss. Then your boss will say don't travel. So hopefully the bosses aren't listening to this segment of your right. podcast. But um, I mean, look, bottom line, no matter how much your day sucks, Jeff, I think what I kind of come back to is I'm getting paid to go watch a major league baseball game and tell people about it or about the people involved in it or about an event that happened at the game. And, and that beats a lot of other things that I can think of do. And I mean, I was a terrible baseball player growing up. That's probably why I started writing about it. I have that in- bizarre innate sense of having always wanted to be a journalist coming out of middle school and followed through in high school, followed through in college, did it, still doing it. One job. Uh, since I left, I graduated college at Drake University, 1983, went to Tampa Bay Times and have never left. That is crazy, especially <laughs> in this era. I mean, <laughs> back in the 80s, a lot of journalists stuck around. They stuck around. You could be a one right. paper, two paper person. But to last, was there ever has there been a moment in those years since arriving in 83 when you came close or sort of close or possible to leaving? Yeah, there were a couple. There were a couple job offers along the way. One was. Um, had two young kids at that point. It was in Toronto. Wasn't just sure about the logistics of moving a young family to Toronto and, and, you know, school age kids at some point coming up soon on there. 
Uh, and then uh, as many journalists was approached by the athletic when I first started, gave that a lot of thought, uh, ended up passing on that. And that's probably a, a conversation I've revisited a number of times, both ways on that, but was happy. I stuck around and, and obviously have, have stayed here since. And so, yeah, there've been a couple junctures. And in fact, one of the thoughts process on the athletic thing was I thought, well, if I became the athletic writer for the Rays, would it be weird showing up in the press box and there's someone else in my seat that I'd had for at that point, like 21 years or 22 years or something. So that was kind of a weird part of the thought process as well. And how, how close did you come to taking the athletic kick? It was close. I mean, it was, I, I'm not a very good negotiator as anyone who's sold me a car in the Tampa Bay area for the last 25 years, probably laughs about all the time when they kind of say, Oh yeah, I know you're the guy at the paper. And then yeah, you sure I'll pay you more, whatever, just keep raising the price. Sure. I'll say yes. But I went back and forth quite a bit and it was really close and, Ultimately, just wasn't sure how that product was going to work in this market. This is a market where we, we invest a lot in trying to get traction in our digital product at the Tampa Bay Times. And I wasn't sure how a new product uh, was going to do in this market. And look, we've seen them retreat a little bit in this market. They don't have a raise writer. It's one of the few teams they don't have a writer for. Uh, they have a Bucks writer and they have a Lightning writer. They don't do any of the colleges in this area. Uh, so, it, you know, I don't know. Was I right or wrong? I don't know. But uh, ultimately, it was a very tough decision. But I did decide to stay. And um, not many did many newspaper colleagues, you know, that were approached did end up jumping a few other states. We have a little bit of a kinship uh, amongst us in that group. I always make this a little selfish and talk about things that I am passionate about and love. And I was a baseball writer at SI in 1998, the year of the first Tampa Bay devil Rays team. Uh, Larry Rothschild was a manager. Chuck Lamar was a general manager. I definitely think I irritated both of them a couple of times, um, <laughs> as I'm sure you did, because you've been there a long time. The wonderful Quentin McCracken was kind of I think he was their all star that year, if I'm not mistaken. Was Quentin McCracken their first all star? He, he, I don't think he was their all star, but he was one of their best players. Rolando Arojo was their first all star, but Quentin McCracken was one of their best players for sure. You're you. It's Major League Baseball. It's coming to Tampa. You've been at this newspaper for years. The team is brutal. They lose 99 games. They go 63 and 99. Um. I'll just throw a big softball at you. Like what jumps out from that first season, inaugural season of Tampa Bay Devil Ray baseball? Hey, in a way, it was just so cool that it was there. I mean, because this is a market that chased baseball for 20 years. That's how I kind of got involved in writing about this was when they were trying to get the White Sox to move here. Then they were trying to get the Giants to move here. They tried to uh, had a group trying to buy, I think, the Texas Rangers and the Twins at that point and the Mariners. So. They went through this exercise so many times, jumped through these hoops. They thought they were shooing for the National League expansion in 93 that went to Florida and Colorado. They were shocked when that didn't work out. So they've been disappointed so many times. That was super cool. So that was the first thing, just that it actually was happening, that I could get in my car and drive 10 minutes from my driveway to park at Tropicana Field and go to a Major League Baseball game every day. The second thing that jumped down to me was, it's a long freaking season. My kids were in one grade of school when I started covering that season. They were in a whole other grade. They had the whole summer vacation, went on trips with me, whatever. And then they were in another grade, and I was still covering the same damn season. So when you when you do spring training and World Series and playoffs and all-star games and all that, you think you know what it's like covering a beat. Maybe as a magazine writer, you, you get a sense of it. But when you actually are doing it every day, that was a big grind. The third thing I would say was they weren't very good, and, and that was okay. I think we thought people were going to embrace them anyway. Um, side note, the only sellout they had at the beginning was that first game and they didn't sell out a game again for years. So that was kind of the first warning sign that maybe this wasn't going to work as well as everyone thought it would work. Is it a good market or is it a bad market for baseball? I can't tell. I still can't tell. You know what? In 25 years, the fact that we're not sure yet, it's probably an indemnification that it's not a good market, but 
you know, they have to get a new stadium at some point. This cannot go on in perpetuity here. They, they've tried a couple times. They've failed to this point. They're going to try again here sometime in this calendar year. The lease at Tropicana Field expires in 2027. The mayor of St. Petersburg is committed to a massive redevelopment of that area with or without a new stadium. So it's going to come to a head here. I, I think what you have to, where the incomplete comes in is the stadiums in St. Pete, you know, the geography of this for people who don't, we're kind of on the Western edge of the general population area. And there's a lot of water. If you draw that circle of within 30 minutes or 40 minute commute, these dolphins are not coming to the game. The, the, the people are not, the people are coming, the fish aren't. So you, you need to get probably more to the population center, a stadium in Tampa area near where the hockey arena is, which draws very well. Yes. Tampa is more of a hockey town than a baseball town. If you wanted to just look at the attendance, that's kind of a surprise. Yeah. So I, I think that probably, if that happens, it's probably a better gauge on this market, but it's a huge TV market. Their web hits are good. Their merchandise sales are good. People are just not physically going to the stadium enough. Do you think it was a mistake naming the team the Devil Rays? Well, given that they changed it after uh, the new ownership took over, yeah, I, that was, I, I don't know. I mean, it was a mistake from the first moment that Vince DiMoli, the former owner who's since passed away, when he stood up at the press conference uh, at the hotel in Palm Beach where they announced that they'd gotten the franchise and he started describing what a Devil Ray was and it was like a passive bottom-feeding sea animal. And it was like, yeah, fire up! You're going to get people really excited to root for the passive bottom feeders. That's awesome. So, yeah, that was kind of a weird name from the start. It, it just put them at the you know in the crossfire for religious groups and zealots who thought that was meaning more than it was. It wasn't just an animal. They, The backstory we heard, maybe apocryphal, was he wanted to use stingrays. There was something called the Hawaiian Baseball League, which was under the guise of MLB at that point, like a winter development league or something. And the owner of that team wanted some money uh, to sell that name. Now, if the rumor was true that he wanted like $5,000, they probably should have paid it. 50000 probably should have paid it. Maybe he wanted a lot more, but stingrays would have been a much better name. All right. So one guy I wrote a lot about through the years was uh, Josh Hamilton. And in 1999, the Tampa Bay Devil Rays decide they have a choice. Josh Beckett, Josh Hamilton, who's going to be number one. And they go with Hamilton and everything about that guy was Mickey Mantle. Everything. He was a five tool guy. He was an aw shucks kid from the South, from North Carolina. I actually went down before the draft, profiled him, loved him. You wrote a lot about him. I actually have a bunch of your clips. I saw. When did you start realizing something was going wrong here? Revisionist history is great. A retrospective is great. I think the fact that his parents followed him around all the time, that was like the first warning sign. Like I get he was a young kid, high school kid, so what, 18 years old from a relatively small town, but not a tiny town. Kerry was a suburb of Raleigh. It wasn't like he was from the hills or something. And But they kind of moved down and like got a camper and kind of followed him around. And like when he was at the low level of the miners, they kind of went city to city with him. And it just didn't seem like that was the right development track that maybe – Again, this is totally just armchair psychiatrist here. Does that push him to the rebellion where he ultimately acts out and plunges headlong into the bad crowd, ends up with a significant drug issue, leads to multiple suspensions, derails his career for a number of years, even as well as he played when he got clean and came back? Who knows what that career looks like if he played those first three, four, five years as he was on track to do and, and where that career would have ended up? I actually think the early franchise trajectory lives and dies with Josh Hamilton's addiction issues. I really do. I think he was that talented of a player. I think he was a Mickey Mantle talent. I really do. And I just think that derailed them for a long period of time. And, and the thing was, I mean, for all the abuse they've taken for draft mistakes and things like that over the years, 
They get Josh Hamilton that draft. They get nothing for Josh Hamilton. Carl Crawford was their next pick in that draft. He was a really good player for them, arguably on their Mount Rushmore. Doug Wechter was their third pick. He pitched in the big leagues for a number of years for them. Seth McClung was next. There were eight players that they drafted, seven of whom they signed. They played in the big leagues out of that draft. But no doubt, Josh Hamilton was a franchise-changing player, and they got nothing for him but the Rule 5 fee when they eventually lost him. I'm looking over the Rays through the years, and I'm fascinated by the 2002 Tampa Bay Devil Rays. They went 55 and 106, right? You're position by position. I just want to say Toby Hall catcher, Steve Cox first base, Brent Abernathy, second base, Chris Gomez, shortstop, Jared Sandberg, third. You got Crawford, okay, in left field, Randy Wynn in center, Ben Grieve in right, Aubrey Huff as a DH. And your rotation is Joe Kennedy, Paul Wilson, Tanya Sturtz, Wilson Avarez, and Ryan Roop. Um, what is it like? I'm actually being serious as a guy who has to go every day to cover a team, to cover just an absolutely shitbag team. Well, one thing is Hal McCray was the manager. So you always had the potential for Hal to say something either funny or outlandish. So you, you kind of bank on that you, you, in all seriousness. That's what, you know, you're, you're looking for content, obviously, on a daily basis. And you're right. You're writing a lead in a notebook every single day for, you know, a season is really 200 days when you count the off days in there. And if you want to put the six weeks of spring in front of that. But so you're looking for content. So you're counting on the manager. But you've got to try to find things interesting. I mean, I think our season preview that year was like, hey, here come the kids, Brett Abernathy, Toby Hall. There was somebody else on the cover of our special section. I think we had to pull off at the last minute because they got like cut in spring training or something. It was like, oh, there were supposed to be three. Now there's two. Okay, there's two kids. And so it was just it's a dismal team. And you had you had to like even kind of mentally as a writer, like not get sucked into the fact that this team sucks. They lose all the time. They get their ass beat all the time. So. What's going to make it interesting? What's going to make a game story interesting? What's going to make a, you know, where they're going? Who are they playing? Who's the hope for the future? You build up prospects. But, you know, there were some realistic talkers in that group. I mean, Tanyan Sturch was a guy I kind of liked. He played for the Yankees and the Rays and a couple other teams. But he was a good guy to give you some perspective. He was a realistic guy. Randy Wynn ended up being the all-star. Crawford, we knew he was going to be special. So you kind of had the beginning of the Carl Crawford trajectory there. Then next year, Rocco Baldelli joined him and we thought was going to be a pretty good outfield. I think there's one spring training picture that maybe had Hamilton Crawford and Baldelli in it at some point. And like, that was, that was the moment that was the team that we thought they were going to have and, and obviously never had. It's uh, late in the season. Your team's 30 games under 500. You're showing up. It's Rays Royals and a, you know, stadium with 6,000. How does that affect you as a writer? And how do you still get up to covering a team when you're that bad? It, it, it's hard. Look, and I'm not I'm not saying that for any any reason to like congratulate myself for doing it. In fact, the, the now that example you just said in reverse, there was a day, I think it was in that season, where they were playing in Kansas City, and it was like a football Sunday, like the Bucks were playing that Sunday, and it was like a eight-nothing game that was decided in the second inning. And I remember thinking after that game, like I should just write three paragraphs and go get dinner because there's nothing that I there's no story I can tell from this game that anyone is going to care about on a day when the football team is playing and there was nothing interesting or positive or vaguely, you know, even fascinating or something to build off of in that game. So it's hard. You have to find something to latch on to. And, and I think that's kind of spawned what now are a lot of the alternative game stories that people do kind of the genesis became of covering games when it the score didn't matter, how the players did didn't matter, and there was nothing that anybody was happy talking about. You don't root for the team. You root for an interesting story. But obviously a team that's losing all the time, those guys are less open to, hey, let's talk about what your batting practice routines are. I want to do a story on that in September. They're like, yeah, right, whatever. I just want to say, when the Rays were 
46 and 73 in August of 16th, 1998. We got a Mark Talkin special. Utility man Ledesma has tools. That's the headline. <laughs> the lead is once he knows where he's going, Aaron Ledesma usually does a pretty good job when he gets there. Ledesma has played well for the Devil Rays at shortstop and at second base and third. And well, you get the idea. Ledesma has been the Rays' most versatile and thus one of their most valuable players. He has started games at all four infield positions in D8s. He has batted everywhere from second to ninth in the lineup. He's been a pinch hitter, a pinch runner, and a defensive replacement. He's available to help in the outfield and is considered the emergency catcher. Um, and then later you look at his stats and you're like, oh, he's actually not very good. That, yeah, is, right. a, that is a quintessential, my team sucks, and it's August right. story. You got to find something. Like I said, you got to still write on the off days or anything else. By the way, Aaron Ledesma now, a hot yoga instructor, if you're interested. Is that true? Studio here in Clearwater, yeah. Another guy I want to ask you about. It's funny. I was thinking, I had this moment in front of my laptop before doing this. So I was like, okay, he covered a guy who was a complete nightmare. What was the guy's name? What was the guy's name? And it was Elijah Dukes. Elijah Dukes played for the Rays from 2003 to 2007. And I just want to read real quick his Wikipedia entry under off the field problem. <laughs> In 1996, Dukes' father was convicted of second-degree murder. One year later, Dukes was arrested for the first time. Dukes has been arrested at least three times for battery, once for assault. According to court records, he fathered at least five children with four women between 03 and 06. On May 23rd, 2007, his wife sought a restraining order against him after he threatened her, her life and the life of their children. On May 2nd, Dukes had sent a photo of a gun to her cell phone and left her the following voicemail. Hey, dog, it's on, dog. You dead, dog. I ain't even bullshitting. Your kids chew dog. It don't even matter to me who is in the car with you. All I know is when I see your motherfucking ass dog, it's on. As a matter of fact, I'm coming to your motherfucking house. He was a talented player. I remember he was a talented, not an amazingly talented player, but a talented player. What was it like being serious covering Elijah Dukes? He's from Tampa too. So this all is happening. It's not just he's the guy who his problems were in Cleveland or Chicago or somewhere. Everyone in that story, everyone related to all that, all lived and worked in, in Tampa. So adding to the uh, experience was knowing that there were people all over the place that were touched by him one way or another. Look, he threatened to kill me. That was my, one of my experiences. I had, to write, I had to write a box, a little sidebar box for our paper in third person that Elijah Dukes threatened to kill a Tampa Bay Times reporter for asking him a question. We were like in Phoenix or somewhere after this initial stuff had come out. Um, we had some other reporters from our paper. Ed Encina, who's now our lightning writer, was actually here then. And was did some of the work where the first story and a couple of our news writers where the wife reached out and sent us that text message and, you know, a photo of he sent her a photo of the gun on his lap while he was driving. And then that text message with the you dead dog kind of became the catchphrase for that, which isn't funny to joke about, but it is something you end up using in the, the dark humor of things like that. And it was it was miserable. It was scary. It was weird. I mean, when you have a guy capable of that kind of threats you kind of wonder and how could he be on the team i remember one day and, and rick vaughn who was a tremendous pr man for the rays and long career with the orioles and the redskins and a bunch of other teams one of his toughest moments was they wrote after one of uh, dukes's missteps they wrote in a they wrote something for him to read which was presented as his apology and he came on the field they gathered the media around for him to give this statement and i guess he misread it so then when he was done, they had to issue a clarification on the statement that they had written for him because he misread it and like didn't say the right things he was going to say. And at that point, you're just like, whatever, like what, what are they going to do to get this guy right? And it, it obviously didn't work out. They ended up getting rid of him. He played for the Nationals briefly and then hasn't really been hurt from since. Wait, he threatened to kill you? Yeah, just like get away from me. I'm going to kill you. So did I did I feel threatened? No. But when I conveyed that to wife and children, did one of our children asked me, like, 
dad, is this guy going to like drive up and like, you know, kill us or something? You know, like that, that was induced into the family conversation. That's not a good thing to have. Right. Wait, usually I ask this at the end of the podcast. I'm going to ask now, what's your best confrontation you've ever had with an athlete? You mentioned Chuck Lamar. One time he screamed at me for like 10 minutes about a story that somebody else wrote in a different newspaper. That was kind of cool. It wasn't his fault. It turned out he was given bad info, but that was kind of cool. Um, Got screamed at by a couple of different players in the clubhouse, which is never a cool thing to happen. Got chewed out by an agent one time for about a, I think it takes me about 30, 35 minutes to get home from Tampa airport. And uh, I think I got yelled at the entire time I was driving home. That was pretty cool being told I didn't know how I was doing my job for uh, doing a story that was a fully legitimate story. So I, I think I've been lucky in that I've never had an incident with a player outside of Elijah Dukes uh, that I actually actually became news. Um, Al Davis did ask me if I was uh, with um, Al Qaeda one time because I was at the Super Bowl covering the the Bucks were on their way to the Super Bowl. So I was covering the Raiders, like the AL, the AFC person. So they win. They're going to now face John Gruden in the Super Bowl, right? Al Davis is in the locker room. Like, I've got to take my shot. It could be my whole story is what Al Davis says about facing John Gruden. Go up and introduce myself. And he goes, I don't know who you are. You could be from Al-Qaeda. So that also became a story effect in Sports Illustrated by Don Banks, which then I had to write about it because Don was writing about it. So weird stuff. Are you from Al-Qaeda? I am not. And I do have ID to prove that. Yes. I was going to ask that. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's been watching a documentary on Warren Jeffs and now wants to start a cult. I've spoken with God Almighty. And in 23 days, six hours and 14 minutes and two seconds to be exact, the world will be destroyed by a giant meatball. Follow me to Toledo if you want to live. Uh, can, can you add one final touch, please? Oh, right. And before you follow me to go to Toledo, go to royalretros.com and spend all your money on the best throwback hats, shirts, and jerseys. Then, and only then, will you be safe from the meatballs in Toledo. Wow, you're just like Warren Jeffs. Thanks. My 36 wives would agree. All right, so you've been, you've been doing this a long time, and you've probably seen, I won't even exaggerate, you've probably seen 500 beat writers come along from different teams and different, maybe even more, actually, if you think about it through the years. What is the difference between an excellent Major League Baseball beat writer and a mediocre to crappy one? I almost hate to say this because I know I'm guilty of this myself, but you have to put the job first. You, this is not a job that you can do from a certain hour to a certain hour on certain days. I mean, if you're, if you have a fully, you know, staffed newspaper to sports department, which very few have anymore, and you have a fully staffed backup who handles things any day you're off, but even on a course of a day, you have to juggle a million things and you have to not uh, care what time of day it is when something happens. I mean, the amount of times that, you are doing stuff that you're not an expert in, such as high finance, such as medical, such as criminal, such as legal stuff, such as contract law. Um, you know, uh, recently it was Pride Weekend. So researching some LBG, LBGTBQ plus issues, like just all the different things you have to soak yourself up to and become an expert on or try to know about to write knowledgeably. So those would be the two things that stand out to me is the hours. It, they're just never going to be easy. You have to commit to the fact that you're going to have some 12 and 13 and 14 and 18 hour days sometimes. And the fact that you just have to be able to juggle a million things. You're not just there to cover baseball. Are there times, have you had times in your career where your family is just furious at the sort of level of devotion you have to covering the Tampa Bay Rays when there are other things in your life that need to get done? Yeah. I mean, furious, but I, to my, I guess, luckily for me, understanding 
and I have a daughter who's now in the PR business. So we now have a great time discussing her being on the other side of it. And like, she'll be like, can you believe this writer did this? And I'll be like, can you believe this PR person pitched this? And we have a fun time going back and forth with that, but sure. I mean, we could, I could probably sit here and think of events. I can actually think of one day where total off day Delman young had just won like baseball America minor league player of the year award. I had tickets uh, for my wife and some friends to go to a meatloaf concert of all people here in Clearwater was pretty excited about that and hang up for this Delman young concert conference call where he then says the organization is cheap and doesn't want to do the right thing to win games and not promote them. And I looked at my wife and said, you need to call our friends and see if you can get a ride with them. So (laughs) I think I made it as the first notes of the first song uh, belted out there, but yeah, but that's not just me. That's you. That's anyone who's been a, a writer covering things that happens all the time. There's extra innings, there's rain delays, there's press conferences, there's guys or people screaming at you. There's unexpected events. So you have to flow with it. But I think in baseball, just because they play every day, it happens much more often. Okay. Weird question. Do you have to care or do you just have to be attentive? And what I mean is, so let's say um, Jeffrey Springs like has a pulled quad. Okay. You have to write about that. Do you genuinely give a shit or do you just know you have to write about it? Yeah. I mean, minor injuries. No, I don't. I mean, do you, do you, I don't think you really care. I mean, you, you know, if it's a person that you enjoy talking to and they have a severe injury, you might have a little bit of, Oh, this guy was a good quote. Or I, you know, this is a nice guy. It's fun to talk to him. It's going to be out a while, but I don't think you really care uh, in that sense. I think you care as you know, a human being, you know, someone else get hurt, but I, I don't think a minor injury, it's more of a, a, part of the job it's more of the currency of just doing your job like okay check this off you know, here, here's pretty much every day you walk in the clubhouse as a beat writer baseball beat writer anyway you've got like a little list of things on your notepad like here's the things from yesterday that didn't get resolved here's some things to ask about here's some things looking ahead here's some injury updates things like that and some days you might have three or four days you might have 10 or 20 but yeah sometimes it's just perfunctory like okay this guy had a minor injury okay he's gonna be out how long is he gonna be out what's the prognosis you know when should we check back for an update the clubhouse is right now open or still not open and you're you're meeting in the uh... back to fully open. So the only, the only rule left at this point and knock on wood here, this doesn't change with any uptick in cases right now is only the only people who have to wear masks anywhere in a baseball stadium right now are the media when they're in the clubhouse. So you talk about a scarlet letter. It's the, it's the media having to wear the mask. But if that was the trade-off for getting back in the clubhouses, nobody was going to fight that. And, Um, I I wasn't sure, to be honest with you, if you would have, if we would have done this interview before the lockout ended, I probably would have told you my gut feeling and my experience was we would not go back in the clubhouse ever pregame. I I thought it was heading in that direction, maybe postgame, but not pregame, but, uh, through the work of MLB and the BBWAA with the union, they agreed, uh, to continue with the current rules throughout the length of this CBA. So back in the clubhouse pregame, back in the clubhouse postgame. Do you think most players are okay with it or players annoyed by that? I think if you were going to if you were going to uh, section it out, Jeff, I would say that there's probably a, a group of a third or so that probably don't like it at all. And there's probably a group of a third or so that are totally cool with it and enjoy the conversation. And there's probably a third or more in the middle that are just like whatever, the, you know, whatever. Let's just you know go with it in somewhere like that. I mean, I think part of it was there was complaints from the union early on a few years ago that there were too many people in the clubhouse, people that weren't there doing their job. And then you kind of get into, well, you know, wh- who, who's going to make that determination? If you're given a credential by the league or by the team, then you're, you have access to be there, right? So, it, you know, now you're being, how many questions are you asking? What questions are you asking? 
So it's a weird system to try to police, but I, I think that the average player is okay with it. I mean, the issues were they all hated Zoom, as most of us yes. learned to hate Zoom. Uh, and it was, I think, uncomfortable. The fact that you can have the conversation in the clubhouse now where you can talk to a player one-on-one, you can talk to a player about something where it's not a, an exchange where you're not necessarily needing a quote, you're making a little bit of small talk or you're asking something for maybe a future story down the road. I mean, here's a great example. Under Zoom, you could do a story where you could ask uh, one, you know, somebody would be on a Zoom and they might get asked 10 questions. If you were going to try and write a feature story, there's one guy getting 10 questions. Now that you're back in the locker room, you can do the kind of story where you can ask 10 people one question. I mean, it was just a fun thing to do a couple months ago was I just asked every hitter, what do you remember from your first home run? And it was actually kind of a fun little story because everyone had their own little story about it. You couldn't do those stories on Zoom. Do you feel like the quality of your material is obviously better since the clubhouses have been open? Yes, I do agree with that totally. I think it's much better because you're picking who you talk to. I think players on Zoom felt like they were in a much too formal setting. You had guys that weren't just comfortable at all. You could tell, and guys that previously were comfortable. But here's the other side of it. There's players in the major leagues right now, and I'll use Wander Franco as an example, who'd never had writers in the clubhouse before this year. Right. Guys that came up in 2020 and 2021 never had media in the clubhouse before. And if they played, you know, most minor league markets don't have media in the clubhouse. So there, there's players that are still getting used to this and finding it to be a new thing. And I, I think there's an adjustment period for those guys too. Wait, so you mentioned Wander Franco. Wander Franco is obviously a, a young phenom. He's 21 years old. So he's, he's literally young enough to be your kid. He, Wander Franco could be your kid and it wouldn't be weird. Like I used to be like, as I was getting older, I'd be like, well, I'd be a young dad, you know, or I'd be a young dad, but I, <laughs> now Wander Franco could totally, you, your daughter is probably, is your daughter older than Wander Franco? My daughter's 33. She just oh. got married at 33. Yeah. She could marry the coach. There's coaches that age. I mean, when I started, right. You're the same age as the players. Then you think, okay, now I'm, now maybe I'm kind of the same age as some of the coaches. Anyways, the players could be my kid. Now you realize you're older than the managers and the team executives. Then you're like me. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm 60 years old. There's people in this room that are 21 years old. It's grim. And it also like the myth that it keeps you young. I just don't see it. Sports makes me feel older and older. <laughs> um, but covering a guy, all right, Wander Franco is 21 years old. He's from the Dominican Republic. Um, you could be his dad. You know, I'm sure he looks at you the way they look at us, like we're ancient. Can you form the same connection sitting here at 60 covering 21 as you could 25 years ago covering Quentin McCracken? Can you form the same connection with Wander Franco? I'm going to say no for a couple of reasons. One is the obvious age difference, the generational difference. But I think there's a different, the players are kind of of a different mindset now. I think back then, the media in the clubhouse were the only conduit. And the players that, you know, wanted to talk, that wanted to create an image for themselves, that, that wanted to promote a charitable effort, that wanted to have a foundation, that just liked to get their name in the paper, whatever it was, those guys, the print writers, the daily beat writers, whatever, magazine writers, the people that were there were the only people that could do that for them. That was the only way it happened. Now you have so many players have their own website, their own team handling them, their own Twitter accounts, their own Instagram accounts, people that do those for them. There's so many different avenues for people to put things out now that I think we're, we've been minimalized in that regard. And I think there's some players who actually prefer that, would actually prefer and you see that you've seen guys break stories of trades on their own Instagram account or their own Twitter account. You've seen guys put out statements when they've gotten in trouble on Instagram and Twitter. So I think the relationship is not going to be the same because I think our role has been minim been minim been minimized by a certain degree just because of the kind of you know explosion of social media and other avenues. Players that have their own websites, the Players Tribune. I mean, there's just different ways for guys to get their stories out there now.
Do you think they give a shit what is written about them in the Tampa Bay Times? Only when it pisses them off. Does that still happen I mean, the way it did where because I remember back in the day, you'd walk through a clubhouse like I did a lot of Mets and you'd walk through the New York clubhouse and they'd have the Daily News in front of them, the post. If Bob Clappish walked by or Joel Sherman walked by, they'd freaking let them know because they were reading it. Like, are these guys still acutely aware? I, I think in some markets, yes. And I would think in New York, probably, yes. We have a, an asterisk on answering that question for you because we only print the paper two days a week now. Right. So we only have a print product. We have an online newspaper, an e-edition, but I don't I don't know that guys are going through that. I think there was just more attention paid again when there were a limited number of outlets. And you're right. The daily clips were circulated. There were times when you asked me before about confrontations with players. There were times when guys would you'd see the clips. I had it with one of the previous managers. He screamed to me about an article and he goes, I didn't read it, but I heard about it. And I looked in the trash can. There were the clips sitting in the trash can. He had just read it. He threw it in the trash can before we walked in there. So. I, I think the fact that then they did read it more, and I think in certain markets anyway now, that, again, has also been minimalized because there's this kind of plethora of other people who are writing things. Right. Well, you um, you covered one of my favorite managers, and I want to tell you why. Back when I was an SI writer, um, I was doing a story. My first ever cover story for the magazine was about Ichiro, and I went to interview Lou Pinella. I swear to God, this is true. I interviewed Lou Pinella while he was simultaneously peeing at a urinal, smoking a cigarette, and eating a hoagie all at the same time. I swear to God. From that moment on, I've been Team Lou Pinella forever. You got him for three years. He's a Tampa native. It was super exciting when he came back to Tampa. And his teams lost 99, 91, and 95 games in his three years there from 03 to 05. What was Pinella like to cover? Let me ask you before I answer your question is the triple crown you just mentioned of those three things. Was he also wearing his underwear while you interviewed him, because that I was another that is, one. He'd sit there with his feet up on his desk in his underwear all the time. I actually can picture that. No, he, he, well, he had his pants <laughs> down around his waist because he was peeing. Yeah, right, right, right. So you almost had the grand slam there. Look, I mean, I, Lou Pinella and Joe Madden made my job really easy for 12 years between them. But Lou, Lou Pinella was fascinating because you didn't know what you were going to get every day. You knew you were going to get something, but you didn't know if you were going to get fiery Lou. You know, if you were going to get pissed off Lou. You don't know if you were going to get understanding, Lou, like, all right, the team sucks. They're young. We got to figure this out. And it changed from day to day. And you'd walk in and it was almost like a daily game. And then there'd be nights when he didn't talk. And, and going back to Rick Vaughn, where Rick would come out and say, yeah, he's not feeling good tonight. I don't think he's going to be available. We're like, no, it's not that he wasn't feeling good, Rick. You know, we know what was going on. He's not going to talk because he's going to blow his stack again. So I thought Lou was fascinating. Lou cared maybe more than anybody, Jeff. I mean, that was the thing. Lou cared. He came back here. He was under the impression in, in the deal he made with Vince Namoli to come back here. They traded for him. They actually traded Randy Wynn, their 2002 All-Star, to get a Lou Pinella here and that he was going to get enough money. They were going to put enough money into the team to win. They did not win. He did not feel that they put enough money into it. Uh, then the transition took place where the Sternberg group bought the team, and, and he wasn't going to be their manager, so they negotiated a settlement, and he left after three years here. But Lou Pinella was fascinating to cover because he wanted to win more than anybody, more than any player, I think, on that team. Wait, one of those guys on those teams for years, actually, one of your probably best all-time Rays, in a way, was Aubrey Huff, who went on to a very big career as an online douchebag. Um, <laughs> could you tell that young Aubrey Huff had a future as an online douchebag? So the, the story with Aubrey Huff was he would basically just be a jerk to everybody, and 90% of the media would be like, oh, okay, he's being a jerk, I don't want to, I'll leave, I'll leave. But if you gave it back to him, he was good. He was actually one of the guys I enjoyed talking to the most because 
you'd walk in and he'd make some joke about, you know, I looked fat that day or I had a stupid shirt on. And I'd be like, yeah, who bought your shirt? Like, where, you know, who are you talking? You, your shirt looks stupid, too, or whatever it was. And then, like, you were kind of, OK, you passed the first test. He shed most of the people by just kind of being a jerk to him. But if you stuck around, he was actually pretty good. So I, I didn't know he was going to go in all seriousness. I did not think he was going to go as extreme as he did. He went off the deep end. He obviously created this online persona that just was ridiculous. And I, I, he seems to have been quieted down now. So I don't know what's happened to him, but uh, he, yeah, he, he did not, I did not see that coming. No, that's the answer to your question. It's really interesting. Was he, um, I mean, you recently covered the story, obviously of the, it was kind of the, a, a big moment uh, recently in baseball and sort of, I guess you would say civil rights, which is you had five uh, members of the race who opted out of wearing the LGBTQ uh, pride themed uniforms during a pride night event. When you have to cover a story like that, are you sort of more like, man, I just really want to cover baseball. Or are you like, oh, this is actually a really interesting sociological sort of thing to dive into? All right. I think the honest answer is both because we have an early deadline on Saturday. I was working by myself. I still had to do the game. I still had to do the notebook. So that side of me is like, man, this would have been a lot easier if this is just a baseball game today. The other side of me was like, this is a really interesting story. This is a story that has the chance to be a very significant story. I didn't know it was going to happen. We knew it was Pride Night. We knew they were asking the players. They, they had had 15 Pride Nights in a row. They had never asked the players to wear anything before. It was always just kind of announced. There were things on the field. But this is the first time they put it onto the uniforms. The Giants had done so last year. So I didn't know. I knew that they all were not going to wear it. I had no idea how it was going to work, who was going to talk, if anyone was going to talk, what they were going to say. So it was actually a little bit of a morning of you know really trying to be locked in, having some research, having some things pre-written about the history of it just knowing that this was going to unfold prior to the game. And I had to file a story probably within an hour or two of, you know, the pregame access and try to turn around. So it was, I think my goal that day, my mission that day was to just to be as fair and present each side or as many sides as there were and kind of lay it all out there and really be as much down the middle as you could. All right. I'm actually interested. You know, this night is coming up, you know, they have the option of wearing these things or not wearing them. How do you initially find out that these five guys have decided not to wear the uniform? Or the well, it, I mean, first of all, it was it became very apparent as the game unfolded because you could see because it, it was a cap and it was a patch that was on the uniform sleeve. The sleeve when we were in the clubhouse before the game, every jersey had it. So now it was going to be a question of who took it off because they were on all the jerseys. So the players that didn't want to wear it took it off. So, I mean, look, we had a photographer there. Obviously, the game's on television. There's monitors in the press box. Had a rough idea. I mean, you could. You know, there were a couple times over the course of the week, there was a lot of conversations going on, nothing that anyone wanted to talk about publicly, but there were some conversations amongst the team going on. And you you could probably sense just, look, you've been in a clubhouse. You kind of get a sense of which guys are which guys and, you know, who might be for and who might be against. So it wasn't a shock of the, some of the guys that ended up not wearing it and made that choice to not wear it. The team obviously was more focused and, and proud of the guys that did wear it. They were viewing it as an opt-in event, uh, I think, you know, from a news standpoint, it was more of an opt-out event. Uh, but it was something where they had a lot of conversations about it. And, you know, to Kevin Cash, the manager's credit, you know, he sat there Saturday and answered every question about it before the game and said, look, there's no division in here. Everyone had their say. We had thorough conversations about this. Everybody feels the same way. And ultimately, their goal was to have a successful Pride Night and honor the gay community. And they felt like they did. OK, so you as a journalist, you know, this night is about to happen you know, there are guys on this team who probably aren't feeling that great about this. 
are you basically walking into this night thinking this is a story I'm going to write about because I know there are going to be some guys who almost certainly will not wear the patch? Yeah, no, that was the plan. I knew I talked to my editor on Friday and said, no one wants to talk about this on or off the record going into this, but I, this is what I think is going to happen on Saturday. You know, we need to have a photographer at the game. This is how I think it's going to come down. Uh, and then it turned out the team, I, I, my biggest question was how was, who was going to speak to this? Were, were players going to talk? Were they not going to talk before the game, which was important to me from our print deadline standpoint, selfishly, or was it going to be after the game, which was going to kind of leave me hanging for print deadline. So uh, the team presented a player who was going to speak for the several of the players who had elected to not wear it. Uh, he talked, and then they presented a player who was uh, was going to wear it and was kind of presenting from that side of it. And, you know, I, I think at that point, Cash spoke. I talked to the team president as well. So I, I think that was how it was presented by the team was kind of here's one guy pre presenting these views. Here's one guy presenting these views, but we're all in this together was kind of their message. From my standpoint, I knew that was going to be a story. I didn't know, like I said, I didn't know how many players were not going to or if they were going to talk. So that was where the preparation was just to kind of cover all aspects and then see how it unfolded. Is there, are you ever like, all right, so the guy who spoke was Jason Adam, who is a 30-year-old pitcher from Omaha. He, he went to Blue Valley Northwest High School. You know, it's like, he's not exactly like a, a civil rights leader in this world, you know, pro or against. He's just, it's not. And his quote was, you know, uh, when we put it on our bodies, I think a lot of guys decided it's just not a lifestyle that maybe not that they look down or anybody or anything differently. It's just a maybe we don't want to encourage it. If we believe in Jesus, who's encouraged us to live a lifestyle that would abstain from the behavior. It's not judgmental. It's not looking down. It's just what we believe the lifestyle he's encouraged to live for our good, not to withhold. But again, we love these men and women. We care about them. We want them to feel safe and welcome here. And you know, this story is going to blow up like it just is. And it did. Is there a part of you that's like, because I'm as liberal as you can get. And in a way, I kind of feel bad for the guy. Like, he's just a guy who plays baseball. Like, he's just a freaking guy who plays baseball. And he's a religious guy. And I don't agree with him at all. But, like, is it kind of weird that we throw these guys a little bit into the fire and, like, expect things from them that probably they don't deserve to have those expectations? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think it probably is. And, and you know, I, I don't know if I could say that I felt bad for him, but I, I think I realized at the time as he was saying that and I was processing what he said and realizing he was going to be the only player made available to speak from that perspective that, well, he said a lot there. This is going to be a quote that's going to be, you know, kind of scrutinized and broken down and analyzed and, and obviously became a series of, of major conversations, you know, throughout the media landscape over this past week or so. So, I did know at the time that that was going to be a quote that was going to get a lot of reaction. I don't know what he, if he went further than he had hoped to, I don't know if that was his point. I mean, he is a very mild mannered guy uh, really just talked to him casually since he actually in today's game, uh, you know, got some big outs and talked about the baseball aspect of it. I think they're trying to move past this issue, but yeah, it, it is weird. As you said, I think when we were talking before we started recording is when teams you know, do get involved with social issues, people that aren't, experts in that or trained in that or know maybe even what they should and shouldn't say, you sometimes put themselves out there. Well, I always, you know, it's funny, like back in uh, 99, I wrote the infamous John Rocker story and Rocker was later suspended by baseball. And I always thought that is unfair. If you're going to have these guys speak and you're going to encourage them, in fact, make it mandatory that they speak to the press, they're not all going to share your beliefs and they're not all going to share my beliefs. It's just the reality of it. And we live in a diverse world with diverse opinions. And to expect that everyone is going to have these share your beliefs, it's just unrealistic. And it's a little bit unfair to these guys. 
No, it is. And I, and I think that's probably why you have a certain segment of the, of the players that are like, they want to just talk about baseball. They don't want to talk about anything else. And, and then where does that line go? And then, you know, you see guys that they, so they have a charitable foundation. So they'll speak about, you know, it's easy to say, sure, let's raise money to beat a childhood disease or something, of course. But then guys go into other social issues and you wonder, should they be speaking for it or not? And that's where I think sometimes the controversy catches up to them. You've, uh, you've covered two raised teams that lost in the World Series. You lost to the Phillies in 08, and the Rays lost to the Dodgers in 2020. You cover this team. You're obviously an excellent journalist. You're an unbiased journalist. You've, you've earned your stripes a million times over. Do you want the Rays to win the World Series when you're covering them at all? It would be an incredible amount of work, but yes, I would. I would like to see what the reaction is compared to the Bucks winning the Super Bowl and the Lightning winning the Stanley Cup. I'd like to see if the Rays have a boat parade and whoever is akin to their Tom Brady throws the commissioner's trophy from boat to boat or something. Is I would just like to see. We talked about is this a good baseball market or not before, and I think you'd have you know that would be an interesting gauge. What would be the reaction if they won a World Series? And and I think you know it would be fun. I'm sure we would do a, a book. The paper would do a book or something like that. And that's something that's kind of around for perpetuity, as as you obviously well know, having written many incredible books on your own. But those type of books become kind of keepsake type of things. They're not really journalistic endeavors. They're kind of compilations, but I, I think it would be fun to see how that worked. I mean, from a standpoint of, you know, do I, am I going to cheer if they win the game or not? Of course not. But I, I think the experience for this community, obviously friends and family in this community, I would just be curious to see how it plays out and how big a deal it is. That would be my ultimate question. Do you think deep down, if, if the Tampa Bay Rays had their own Petco park, we'll just use that as an example. It's not far from you. A beautiful stadium in a cool area with lots of, you know, concessions and different foods and entertainment for the kids. Could that be a team that draws 35,000, 28,000 fans, 30,000 fans a night, and people view it as a destination and the, the, the course of the raise has changed forever. Maybe your numbers are a little high. I think maybe you'd have a team that could draw 20 to 25,000, but I, yeah, I mean, look, this is, I, I know you've been down here. I mean, this area is a beautiful area. In fact, Joe Madden, who since has been fired, but talked to him when the Rays were out in Anaheim a couple of weeks ago about the stadium issue near and dear to his heart as well. And, he, he put it great. He said, it's a beautiful area. Show it off. Figure out a way to build a stadium that shows it off. I mean, you mentioned Petco. Let, let's go to uh, the Giant Stadium. I forget what it's called now. It's changed sponsors about three times. Is it AT&T Park now? I or don't know. Yeah, I whatever know. it is. The Giant Stadium. Put it on the water. Put people out there on the you know, stand-up paddle boards are big here. Put people out there on stand-up paddle boards chasing the home run balls. Put this on the water. I mean, you've got water in Tampa. You've got water on the St. Pete side figure out a way to make this stadium a showcase type facility. Yes. It's going to have to have a retractable roof. Yes. It's going to be closed a lot in the summer, but you know, put glass in there like Houston has. We just came from Texas. They've got a ton of glass. Miami has a window, find a way to bring the outside in when it's closed and show off the area. But yeah, it should work. It should work. It should definitely work better than it has to this point. Yeah. Um, let me ask you a final question. Cause I'm always fascinated by him. You, uh, I'm a little old school here, obviously you, uh, you covered Jose Canseco sort of toward the end when he was a marquee member of the Devil Rays. And uh, it's funny, I'm friendly with Sean Green, who played with him with the Blue Jays, and actually said the guy was a pretty great teammate. Um, what was Canseco like to cover? I actually thought he was smart. I mean, I, I know he's done some dumb things, but he was pretty smart. He actually had, you know, the trop has the rings, the catwalks. And he had this idea that I've since heard other people who like in the promotions department repeat, but he thought they should put like lights and stuff on the ring. So if a home run hits it, instead of everyone going, oh, what happened? Oh, geez, the stadium sucks, whatever. Make the lights go off and the bells and the music and flash the lights and everything and turn it into an event. So 
I thought Canseco was great. The other thing was the Rays haven't had a lot of celebrity players through the years. Yeah. You know, they haven't had a, like you walk through a hotel lobby and you see people come running up to it. That doesn't happen to like your Ben Grease of the world, you know? So the fact that they had Jose Canseco, that was kind of cool. You had kind of the rock star uh, approach or the rock star philosophy for the team when he was on it. So I enjoyed covering Jose Canseco. I just want to say, I love that the Rays, the, the dumbest retirement number ever. Tell me if you disagree. You know who I'm going to say, right? I think I know who you're going to say. Wade Boggs' number, retired from the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, or Rays. He, he played how many games? How many? Right, two seasons in Tampa. He, he played a year and a half. Come on, what do you want? He played a year and a half. He got his 3,000 hit here. I'm sure that's why that was your justification for doing it. But, yeah, he, didn't, he did not go in the Hall of Fame as a Devil Ray. Yeah, I love that stuff. I love that franchise. I used to love covering them. I just found them so wacky. I remember Bobby Smith and Randy Wynn and Quentin McCracken and Tanya Sturts and all those guys. And they were just, oh, and the one year, my favorite was when they thought, here's the genius idea. We're going to get Vinny Castilla, Fred McGriff, Jose Canseco, and Greg Vaughn and put them back to back to back to back in the, in the middle of a lineup. Well, the problem was they called it the hit show. They needed to add one more letter at the front of hit because that's yeah. what it turned out to be because it was a total disaster. They ended up releasing Vaughn, trading Castillo, uh, trading McGriff eventually, and, and it just didn't work at all. But it was an interesting idea. We did a heck of a preview section photo. We had them all in an alley like they were motorcycle guys with their shirts cut off and, and flexing their muscles. It was a great photo for the Tampa Bay Times, but yeah, it wasn't very good on the field. A big syringe off camera. You couldn't see it. <laughs> I said that, not you. There you go. Uh, Please. Yeah. Well, Mark, listen, I, um, again, I've admired your career for years. I freaking love that you've stayed with this beat. I just think it matters and I think it's cool. And, um, I hope you're covering them for another 30 years. I really do. Yeah, let's let, let's that. see if we can get through three to five more. That would be, that would be a good goal. So we'll Fair see. I, well, here's the, here's my question. Will they eventually get a new stadium? Will I ever cover a game in that new stadium? That'd be beautiful. You deserve <laughs> it. They should name it the, uh, the Topkin Dome. All right. Uh, well, Mark, listen, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, big admirer. Yeah, thank you so much. No, I appreciate it, Jeff. It's glad we finally got to make this happen. I want to thank today's guest, Mark Topkin, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Mark on Twitter at TBTimes underscore Rays and read his work in the Tampa Bay Times. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the sizzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. Happy July 4th. And remember, keep riding.